0: and the clock is ticking. My son is still in Utah. My son is not with me. There is this bomb that is ticking on the top of my head and still is to this day.
1: There. my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. A huge thanks to all the attempt survivors who have joined me on this podcast since we launched in July of 2020 and to everybody who listens. We really appreciate it. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And we do have a website up, SuicideNoted.com. We're working on it. It's not done, but it's up. And you can also contact us If you'd like to support the podcast, in addition to doing what you're doing, I would encourage you to share it on social media. If you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing really helps. And I'll put a link in the show notes for ways you can make a financial contribution if that is your jam, but however you support. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And please keep in mind, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. It may not be a good fit for everybody, so please take that into account before you listen. And of course, you can always hit the pause or stop button on your podcast player. That said, I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with A. A lives in Oklahoma, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Your name's not Jacob.
0: <laughs> it's my husband.
1: <laughs> Are you in a comfortable place to talk?
0: Yes, I am. I just put my little boy down for a nap, I'm um, got the office to myself, so we're all good to go.
1: Awesome. Great. Yes. A in Oklahoma. You're my first person <laughs> from Oklahoma.
0: Yeah. Cool, cool. Good deal. You're not I the have... only
1: person who has attempted suicide in Oklahoma. I know that.
0: I believe that.
1: No doubt. Mathematically, it's... <laughs> I'm always so curious. There's a few things I'm curious how people find the podcast, how they stumbled upon it, where their story starts. So, how do you want to start this? And we'll get to everything.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely want to give you a little bit of background on my okay. life. I think that it's certainly important to get a full picture. Um, believe it or not, um, I my first or initial attempt was in twenty eighteen, and I went through my process and I have a continued my process of healing and and just really addressing some rooted issues that go you know all the way back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. um but i was having just some some real emotional just kind of garbage kind of come up um over the last few months and i realized that my self care methods um although have been working really well and have been great for me um mm-hmm. have kind of just fallen a little stagnant and so It just kind of seemed apparent that I needed to add some additional tools into my life. And so I just got on Spotify. It was like, man, instead of listening to XYZ podcast, that's not really giving me or feeding me spiritually or mentally. um, What can I do to really just kind of eat, sleep and breathe wellness right now? Um and yours was one of the first podcasts. I just typed suicide into Spotify. Right? You know, if the FBI ever like interrogated me? They'd probably be concerned about my phone phone usage. <laughs> I get
1: I get the impulse to want to just listen to music or other types of podcasts for sure. Mm-hmm. Now you said self care. Some people would hear this and think, "Wait, I'm a little confused." <laughs> someone's trying to improve their self-care and they put the word suicide into a search engine, Spotify or whatever it may be. Can you expound <laughs> on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think it's a little bit of um, misinterpretation or misconception on, on when we call it that, you know. and it's really been a theme of my life um, and we can talk a little bit more about it if you'd like to later, but I'm actually in the process of being a, a doula, a death doula. And um, part of that is really going through the process Of my own healing. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things when you have started a journey like this to really find some wellness in your life is you have to face all of that and you have to hear the ugly, like dark shit and you have to process the things that you don't want to say in the mirror or to your, you know, closest friend or, you know, confidant. And so um, I think part of my healing process really has just been looking at things for what they are and uh, being able to be on the other side of that. When I hit pause or stop on the podcast and be like, Hey man, I made it through that shit. I made it through an hour of hearing other another person's experience that I can really fucking relate to. It gives me another hour. It gives me another hour.
1: All right. Let us, if you're comfortable, you use the words, ugly, dark shit. Great segue. Was it your first and only attempt was 2018 or the first
0: my first attempt was in 2018. Um, I had uh, um, a situation sort of unfold over the last like month where I did threaten in front of somebody um, with like a knife to my wrist and just mm. um, you know I don't think that I necessarily wanted to die in that moment. Um, I think I just really you know needed to feel heard and the pain was just greater than the the idea of not being here anymore.
1: Mm. When you're like a kid and a teenager, is your life, however you define it, kind of stable-ish, normal-ish?
0: It, it's really hard to gauge that for myself. I felt like I, my life started out up until the, about the age of six, you know, I, I was born into like uh, withdrawal from um, narcotics, from from being in my mother's womb and, you know, her not taking care of herself. And then, um, you know, really just the the addiction of that unfolding. Yeah, so really kind of a rough start into life. Um, my mother passed away when I was sick. She sort of succumbed to her addiction for, you know, I don't want to say like the seventh or eighth time, um, you know, according to facts that I've been given by family. Mm. And then um, I was placed into uh, my father's uh, custody with my other two siblings of five. And we moved up to Utah and um, we had a little bit of a rough start. And then we moved out to a small town. And uh, I think my, my father's intentions were really to just shelter us and keep us on the straight and narrow. And in the process of doing that, I think really kept us from some really important conversations that we needed to have. You know, ironically, we had to reschedule this interview. I listened to uh, one of your um, previous interviewees and uh, from Virginia and uh, hearing her story really, really impacted me and and sort of triggered some um, important things that I felt like I needed to address with my father Um, Mm -hmm. and him being also kind of a dry, drunk, very angry person. Person, sort of living by this. If they fear me, they'll listen to me because I'm afraid. And, um, you know, my father was a very afraid and angry man as well. It took him until, um, March of last year, um, to, um, admit uh, to me after being given some information by a, a different family member that I was actually adopted and that my biological father, um, did abandon, uh, you know, my mother and us, you know, pretty early on in life. And so I was sort of given that, you know, weight sort of dropped on me. And although it had, it was very impactful and traumatic um, in the process of my healing, I felt like it came at the right time, but mm-hmm. I also felt like I was really just thrown into the thick of all of it and, and really, really being able to understand um, this world of healing that really has needed to happen in my life for, you know, 30 years.
1: Just so I'm clear. And it actually doesn't matter that much, but I'm just a curious guy. When you referenced, uh, so obviously you said how you came into the world, you later learned that about your birth mother.
0: Yes. Yes. And then
1: you were given up for adoption by your birth mother and and I assume her partner or father, biological father.
0: So when my mother passed, they had nobody to place us with um other than with um another sibling of mine who was of age at the time um but she was very young. And so um my not biological father but my adoptive father um who is the biofather of my other two siblings that moved.
1: Half siblings, right?
0: Yes. And um you know, he was very adamant of wanting to take us and protect us and keep us together. Um, so mm-hmm. in my eyes, that man earns brownie points. You know, he he really truly just showed up and showed out for me um with really no conditions that are were left behind on that. So
1: and he he is the one, the one who adopted you, who you were referencing as dealing with some anger stuff.
0: Correct he, I, the person I, you I,
1: were around, right? Day in and day out.
0: Yeah, adoptive dad is dad through
1: and through. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so I was sort of the original question, childhood, teenage years, you're going through stuff, the birthplace, so to speak, of some of our pain and trauma that might be in part leading to these acts.
0: Yeah. Kind of a crash course on the history of of me. So <laughs> <laughs> however um, you
1: want to do it. Sure.
0: Yeah. You know, my, um, my teen years, I, as far as like the health or mental health issues that I would say that I have dealt with um, I I would consider it more of like a complex version of a PTSD. So I did go through the childhood traumas of abuse and neglect and abandonment. Um, And then on top of that, When you're in high school and junior high and you're learning about your body and boys and, you know, relationships and all of these other things, you can sort of re-traumatize yourself in the process of that if you don't have the tools to just value yourself and take care of yourself. And so I, I experienced some traumatizing things throughout my teen years.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
0: in emotional relationships. And then also, you know, from like sexual assault um, and um, just being in, in an environment where the male person was a perpetrator and, and really harming me. And when I was, uh, had just kind of turned into my early twenties was when my addiction had sort of kind of taken over. So I started to numb with anything and everything I could. And, and my primary poison was opiates. When I got into a relationship in the process of this addiction, and I don't even call it really a relationship because you can't really even call it that it's just this toxic situation of really misery loving company this individual um uh, really really sort of was the catalyst of uh, um the things falling apart and hitting bottom um and also really what's it's sort of skyrocketing me into the middle of all of that thick Mm -hmm, toxic mm -hmm. level of pain and this was in 20 2015 uh, my addiction had gotten so bad um that I was completely kicked out of my home my oldest son was taken from me, um, just on my own volition of, of just understanding that that was the best option in my family, trying to be there as a support for him mainly. Um, and I was just kind of told the kick rocks. And I walked out that door at like 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm a, I'm a very firm believer in divine timing. And this is part of that reason. But I walked up what I felt was like a 1000 miles. And I got to this proverbial but real crossroad intersection. And it was like my dad's house is behind me. My sister and my son are in front of me. The police department is on main street and I can take a right and just take the shortcut and find the easy way out. And what I mean by that is just going to get drugs and hoping that I don't wake up. And, um, I took a right to be honest with you. I took a right and was like, fuck this. I don't want to be here anymore. This pain is too much everyone is better off without me. And quite honestly, I don't feel like I have anything to live for anymore. Everything's been taken. So I took that right. And in the middle of, uh, of me going through this, I'm like in full blown hallucinations, man. I am like a toothpick. I have the clothes on my back. It's like 30 degrees outside and I don't even have a sweater on and I'm just like hoofing it. And I, I don't know if this is real life or if the universe was talking to me or if it was my hallucination, but the street lamps on the street, when I took that right, started to go out. Don't know what that meant. And in the middle of that, I just felt this sensation come over me, like, you know, surrender, give up, give in. And and I dropped to my knees and was like, please, if there's a sign, it was like this first sort of foxhole prayer that I, you know, I had tried to or attempted to, to make, to god or you know whatever that was to me at the time and I had no idea I was like please just give me a sign and I stood up and I wiped my tears and I got back up and I turn around and it's five hours later and I don't know how but it's the first bus of the night of the morning and I see the woman come off the driver come off the bus to light a cigarette, and I was like I can make it and not only that this bus had like big yellow arrows on the back of the bus like I'm right here salvation And I ran as fast as I could, which was probably not very fast because I was really sick at that time, rode her bus 45 minutes into the city and all the way to the end of the route. And she was like, you can stay on the bus and I can call the cops. Mm. I can call 911 and get you some help. Mm. Or I can give you a free red line ticket. You can go around the corner and get on the fast track and see how far South you can get.
1: Who was this woman?
0: I know. The crazy thing about this is. It was you. Parents- I'm
1: telling you, this woman saw herself in you. I promise you.
0: <laughs> I have no idea. The crazy thing is, when I got on this bus to talk to her, I just, it was like the words came out of me. The immediate first phrase that came out of my mouth was, I need help. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what else to say to her. I need help. It was the, the fastest way I could communicate that I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just looked at me. I was like, I don't have any money. I'm sick. I'm homeless. I need to get to a hospital or a behavioral health place ASAP. And she was like, get on the bus. My grandson is riding with me today. He will give you some water that he has. And the name of that boy is the name of my eldest son. And I have never forgotten that to this day.
1: (laughs) If you haven't written a book. (laughs) All right, so I know there's more to that part of the story, but Mm -hmm. I'm wondering up until that point, 2015, mid-20s-ish, early to mid-20s, are you ideating at all?
0: You know, I think I suffered from like PSIs probably that I can remember since the age of like nine and it was mm-hmm. pretty close after the first time I had uh, um, an issue with like sexual assault or molestation. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't something that I remember being like having a plan or knowing what it meant. I just remember being like, what would it be like if I never existed? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what those thoughts at, at that age really looked like for me. And uh, as I got older and and had some traumatic things happen to me throughout my teen years, it seemed very f- frequent that I was having those moments or ideations at times where obviously shit hits the fan um, or um, I start to feel like there's no hope.
1: Mm -hmm. You're on the bus. You can do one of three things. By the way, what city were you in? Are you okay sharing that or no?
0: Yes. I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, downtown.
1: What's the choice you make in that moment in Salt Lake City on the bus with this woman and her grandson?
0: So the humor in all of this is, again, I'm hallucinating, so I cannot determine the difference between my hallucination and reality, but I know I'm conscious, at least I think, because on the bus ride, I'll be honest, when it said no, um, no stopping, I thought I was on the bus to hell. I thought like, this is it, man, you just got on to the end of your life, you got what you asked for because it did feel like this level of purgatory and sort of this ref- reflective, you know, moment of of making some really really important decisions, um, you know, do I want to go back? Right. Do I want to get off this bus or do mm-hmm. I want to just let it take me as far as it will go?
1: Some people forget that they hear this that when you choose to get better, choose to go into recovery, choose to get help, it's usually really fucking hard. <laughs> so, um, anyhow I I digress a little bit. Yeah, take me on that bus.
0: So I'm hallucinating. I'm hearing audiations. I'm seeing hallucinations, and I'm thinking this this woman can read my thoughts. So I'm not responding. I'm just staying silent, and I'm making eye contact with her. And I'm thinking she's going to understand what I'm saying. She's going to get it. She didn't hear me, and she didn't understand what I was what words I was trying to telepathically communicate to her. And that was the first real moment of like realization that I'm sick, Mm. that this isn't real life and Mm. that my thoughts are not fact. I just looked at her and was like, please call nine one one. And she did. And I sat in the, um, TA, you know, um, officer security guard's car until the, um, ambulance came. And uh, as they're loading me onto the stretcher, it was like this verbal vomit and being just so tired of holding everything in That They started asking me questions and it was like everything came out. They were like, where do you live? And I was like, I'm homeless. They Mm -hmm. said, what is this cut on your wrist? And I said, I don't want to be alive anymore. And um, I don't mean to trigger any of your listeners, but that was a form of my uh, numbing. Um, I did utilize self-harm to, to mm. feel better. They noticed that and I told them and and at some point in having this conversation with the EMT or the paramedic, I just see her eyes sort of shift and it was like she could see my pain on me and she could see the torment that I was going through and it was like all judgment had left her. She just without having to say anything else, she just understood the 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 task here. Mm-hmm. and, um, she got me to the hospital. Um, she looked at me in my eyes and she just told me it's not over yet. Yeah. Yeah. So just real defining things, just really just this, the universe, really just all of these series of events unfolding. And it was just like the path sort of being led me led through the path and really just kind of having to show up for those decisions, um, and make a decision. hmm and um, we got to the hospital. I really don't know how long I stayed in the hospital for just because I was kind of in and out of consciousness. I had started to withdraw a little bit. I wasn't using, and by that point I was only using, um, uh, stimulants. So I was using amphetamines at the time. And I thought, well, if I get clean off of like the opiates and the heroin, I'll be good. And it'll just help me do more and stay awake more. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just changing one demon for the other. The clear thoughts started to come in just a little bit. Those hallucinations were still happening. And I decided that I needed to pick up the phone because I only memorized my sister's phone number who had my son. And I just pleaded. And I told her, I was like, I'm going to die. Unfortunately, Utah is one of those states who do not or do not take private insurance. Um, so it's it's very expensive for treatment. And um, the plan that they gave me was really just a sheet of paper with a couple of facility names on the list of that.
1: So what does your sister say?
0: My sister says, you're going to have to try and find somewhere. You can do it. It'll be okay. And she hung up on me and I called her back. <laughs> And I said, please, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. You're never going to see me again. And it wasn't a threat. It was just this genuine knowing that if I didn't fight for myself and for my life here, that I was going to die. And uh, she just said, I need you to stay where you're at. I will be there in 45 minutes. Do not move.
1: That call that you made, the second one, because some people understandably would be like, nah, fuck this.
0: (laughs) You know, I think it's such a metaphor for option A and option B. I feel like we're so used to choosing option a consistently about our choices because we're so comfortable with that. And, you know, I can get into all the like cliches of recovery, but you know, that's really what it is. And it's like, okay, let me do something differently instead of you, my ego getting in the way and saying, all right, well F her. And I'm going to just figure it out. You know, I really had to sit all the way down and be like, Hey, I'm, I'm hurting here. I really need you to hear me. And it was one of those moments where, Um, it did not fall short. And she did hear me. And although Mm -hmm. I didn't always feel that support that I needed from her, it was one of those moments where it was really defining in my life.
1: So do you find a place to go and get better?
0: Yes, but not after waiting for her at the hospital, because when I walked out the front door, I'm thinking cops are after me, I'm thinking people are following me, and I see the first car that pulls up to the hospital to drop a family member off, and it's two women, so I'm like, I'm safe. I see um, a sister with her younger sister in the car, and the younger sister has burns on her face, so I'm assuming she's being seen or treated for that. And um, they said, Hey, come get in the car. You look really upset. Do you need to use my phone? I called my sister again, because I was scared. And I was like, are you prompt? You promise you're coming? They could see how upset I was. And the woman that was driving was like, Hey, I can't, I can't sit here with you because there's cars moving and I've got to be somewhere. And the younger sister in the passenger seat said, I have an appointment. I'll wait with you. And th- this complete and total stranger sat down with me and my total blubbering, hallucinatory mess and just started talking to me. And she just talked to me about everything. And it was the first time that there were no conditions on the things that I said, nothing could come back to me. What was she going to do? Walk away if she didn't like what I said. So when she started talking to me, I was giving her these very honest details about what had unfolded over those days with this significant other that I'd had in the process. In the process of that, she told me that, people thought that she had gotten those burns by an accident and that she had done it to herself. And so I had made this, you know, guardian angel friend and to this day can't remember her name. And she sat with me even when I tried to walk away um, that entire 45 minutes um, until my sister got out of the car and pulled me in there and was like, I'm not letting you out of my sight.
1: So there's just seemed like, there were several moments sort of what you shared where it could have just gone that other direction And you're probably not talking to me right now.
0: Yeah. There's a moment in the car where she's driving me to FedEx because I need to get papers notarized because my son is priority one to everyone except for me at that point. And um, I don't hold a lot of guilt anymore for that. I have forgiven myself for um, being so preoccupied with my pain that I couldn't focus on my child. Um, Mm. It is something that I very easily triggered by though. Mm. And so, um, I think that in the process of me being in the car, she's driving me to FedEx and she sees I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And I'm just like, I'm speaking in tongues at this point because I'm just so not there. I remember having this hallucination or like visualization in my head that I was going to jump out of the car. She was like, do not make me slam on this, these brakes in the middle of the highway, like put Mm -hmm. your Mm seatbelt on. We need to go do this. Went to FedEx, sat in a parking lot for like an hour so we could talk to an attorney. Got real honest about some of those details as well. Um, And I won't go into detail on that. But and then she took me to a hotel and, and the entire night she practically slept by the door. Um, she would wake up and be like, you're getting really awfully close to that balcony. And I tried to go get like, t- I remember this, even though I was hallucinating, trying to go get Tylenol and just like trying to walk out the door. And she's like, what are you doing? She's like, how are you going to get it? Told her I was going to probably steal it. And I think I was looking for any excuse or any path that was not going to allow me to be here anymore. I was so ready to be done.
1: So there's one thing I'm not clear on. When you say I need help and you go to the hospital, two questions. Why do they let you out?
0: Exactly. They can be in less than 12 hours.
1: Then, then, so there's this sort of serrated edge. Things aren't smooth. So when you get out, even though you went to the hospital and you didn't need to because you wanted help. Now you're back with your sister, and and you might not want help now. Sort of going back and forth, you're fighting it. You want I'm help
0: at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I'm. I'm squirming in my pants at this point. I have taken it this far, and I'm am getting cold feet. I'm like, I I don't want to do this anymore. I I can't go through this and walk through this.
1: But are you also going through physical withdrawal from drugs? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's also a big part of this, right? It's a physical dependency that your body's needing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like a physical level of pain and an emotional level that has kind of always been there. And so for a long time, the, the addiction was really my way of um, not focusing on it. It was just another obsession that I could take away from the attention of that. And, you know, I'm a very intelligent and smart person. So when I make a decision about something, I go for it 100%. And uh, um, when I chose addiction, it took my life from me very, very quickly because mm. I was so adamant
1: about it. I, I spent some, a fair amount of space in the world of personal narrative story. And one of the things you never want to do, or not typically, is give away the end. The challenge here is we know the end, in part because, one, you're talking to me. Right. And then, two, we have already established that you had an attempt after all of this. So, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, so between 2015 and 2018, there's a lot going on there, and presumably after. So, you're in the hotel.
0: Yes. So after the hotel, we wake up the next morning and I'm still in in such a hallucination that I think I've been in a coma for three years and I'm just waking up for the first time. Nothing is real. And she drives me to an airport. She puts me on a plane. I'm originally born in Texas. So we have close family friends that live uh, in Austin. She put me on a plane flight and I walked off the plane. And the terminal and my connection flight, I almost didn't even make it to Austin. By the grace of whatever is out there, uh, I made it. And I get off the plane, and my family member lets me dry out on their couch for 10 days. I'm sure very painful days for them because they were watching me like I was a toddler. And it was a um, very, very ugly process to um, not be in a detox center to not have clinical um, you know, professionals near me. I also feel like it was something that I needed to experience because I work in healthcare and I know what the process is and I know how to manipulate the system. So it was very easy for me to um, be able to use that as a cop-out and, and being in that place for 10 days was just... You know, very eye opening. And at the end of the 10 days I get placed into a um, in treatment uh, patient facility. Uh, I don't know that they are still around anymore, but they are now called the Council on Recovery um, in Austin, and they housed me for 28 days. I went into sober living after that. And for three years, I eat, sleep, and breathed NA and AA. And so you talk about my attempt happening in 2018. Well, again, although addiction was not a healthy tool and AA and NA are very healthy tools, it's still a distraction and a way to um, not focus on the root of, of my issues. And, you know, even in, in doing the 12 steps and all of that, right, you can write anything and everything down, but if you're not doing that self-reflective work and really addressing those issues, um, you're not going to do any real, real work that needs to be done.
1: A couple of questions. One, why do you go to the home for 10 days and not directly into the
0: 28 day treatment center? So because I was not a resident of the state, um, I have to had to be a resident for so long. And in order to do that, we had to get an address and all of that set up. So I had to go through, um, you know, uh, assistant state services and in, in the process of interviewing and then really being able to understand and see how sick A is and uh, um, when we can get her in. And to be honest with you, when I got into treatment, that was about as quick as anybody could get into a facility because the wait time for beds. Once I am admitted was like 30 to to 60 days.
1: How many people do we lose in those days? I, I don't, this isn't a, a really a podcast about our healthcare system, but it comes up a lot. Yeah. And it really is just like, yeah, it's a rabbit hole. I don't want to go down, but the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the argument that we don't have the money or resources is just such bullshit. I agree. It's a choice that we're making. Because I think for the most part, decision makers look at people like you or you then and many others as, eh. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, do we really give a fuck? Right. Like, let's not candy coated. There's also some great human beings out there. You obviously came across some of them.
0: For sure.
1: So they're yeah. all, but it's just upsetting to just to hear that you have to jump through hoops to get help.
0: You know, Sean, the biggest fuck you to the healthcare system, to be honest with you, is being able to stand up in front of a classroom and teach the way that I teach Mm. Um, because compassion care and ethics and the ability to contact or connect and meet a person where they're at, I think can save anybody's life. Mm -hmm. uh, I get, I get my revenge in some ways.
1: So you go through, you hustle your ass off for three plus years. Yeah. Sounds like you're clean.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. I've been clean. I do live in a legal state, so I have my own, um, maintenance and I don't apologize for it. And I live, um, you know, for the most part, a pretty healthy and maintain a healthy lifestyle at the same time, there are still some issues there. And, um, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if everything was all peachy. So there's no delusion or, um, you know, misconception there for me. Um, I utilize things in moderation that I feel like give me a a healthy state of mind. And um, I choose not to engage in pharmaceuticals anymore. So
1: 2018.
0: 2018, I am now moved in with the father of my newborn child who is six months old. I am working full time. I am trying to provide a level of income and savings so that we can get our life started. And uh, my son and the clock is ticking. My son is still in Utah. My son is not with me. And Mm. there is this bomb that is ticking on the top of my head and still is to this day. And this is probably the sorest part of the conversation. So excuse me if I get a little emotional. So in 2018, um, I am being told that we are going to start the process. We are going to move forward with getting my boy here and we're going to move his stuff here. We're going to get it all done July or June 9th is the day. That's the day that we schedule the flight and excuse me.
1: Mm, Take your time.
0: I was dealing with some health health issues that were popping up at the time. And I, I still have to um, take care of some issues that it, it is a long-term and sort of a chronic thing that I'm going through. And I did not want to admit when someone called me out that I was starting to sort of wean back on over to um, self-medicating mm-hmm. and numbing the pain. Because if I could focus on the phys- getting rid of the physical pain that I was feeling, I'm not mm-hmm. focused on the mental. I got into an argument with a loved one and I said, all right, well, fuck this. I am done. I'm leaving. I'll just leave. You don't have to. I won't be around anymore. Fuck it. And um, thankfully, uh, my son was was taken. I did not have my son with me. Um, I got in the car. Um, no phone, no money, just my keys and my car. And I remember having you know previously to that uh, just to give you some you know background information a week before that i had in, um admitted myself into a behavioral hospital so i had already told people like i think i want to kill myself i am going to hurt myself and i spent 10 days there
1: quick question and and it, this is getting to the uh, a little too sensitive no worries
0: yeah no you, go for it.
1: june 9th is the day that your son was supposed to come and didn't come or june 9th is the day that you're talking about now
0: June 9th is the day that I'm talking about now and the day that I was supposed to get on a flight to go get him. So it's the same day of 2018. I was supposed to get on a flight to go pick my son up to bring him home.
1: And Mm -hmm. instead
0: on June 9th, I decided to take this route. Uh, So a week, two weeks prior to that, I'm starting to get cold feet. I'm getting nervous. I think I'm going to fuck him up even more. Mm -hmm. My, my partner at the time, I think was really in a much more clear headed form of thinking. So he could see that we were not in a financial state or position to take on um, another level of responsibility as much as we want him to join the home. A is not okay right now. A still has a lot of problems that she needs to address and to bring a child into into the dynamic. Another child um, at that age just was not responsible. And I was so, so just tunnel vision on reunification and hugging him and being with him that it was like, uh-uh, I'm getting there. I don't care what anybody says. We're This is what we're doing. And so uh, two weeks up leading up to that, um, you know, my partner and I are arguing more. We're having more serious and heated conversations because he's coming. His stuff is already here. I remember just getting into an argument the morning of and walking out the door and just having an ideation of like, I could just kind of turn the wheel of this car and go off the ditch or the bridge, or hopefully maybe a car will hit me. And if I survive, I'll just be like, Oh, I sneezed. You know, already thinking of the the alternatives. I got to work. I worked at a, um, a medical or a doctor's office, a primary doctor's office who had prescribed me a lot of uh, psychiatric medication. I told them that I was not okay that I was thinking having ideations of of genuinely wanting to kill myself and never feeling that strongly about it since my addiction you know so for 3 years I, I did pretty good they placed me into um a, an inpatient hospital mental health hospital for about 10 or 11 days and then when they discharged me I just remember pulling up to that driveway and being like okay my problems are still here waiting for me 100% nothing has changed And so go back inside. And I realize my son is still coming. You know, I'm not ready to pull the plug on this yet. So I'm determined and everybody is looking at me like, hello, you were just in a hospital, you know, and you're bringing your child, Um, you know, wake up Ariel. And, uh, I discharge, I have this interaction with my loved one, I get in my car, I leave and I've got all the medication that my primary doctor and my employer had prescribed to me. And uh, not only is it, you know, mood stabilizers, it's, um, you know, um, benzos. And Mm -hmm. all kinds of other things that are going to fuck up my brain if I take too much of it. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did. I pulled into the parking lot of my work because I knew I could drive around the corner and nobody would see me. And I'm a cigarette smoker. So I, at this point, I'm smoking cigarettes and I'm flicking them into the back seat of my car because I'm like, fuck this. If, it, if the car doesn't blow up, you know, maybe I'll fall asleep and just die peacefully. I left the door open of my car because I was thinking if I fall out of the car, it's more likely when somebody drives in on Monday morning to see me than to just think the car is parked. So I this was the first real time that I was going through the and playing out to make sure that I would succeed in that. And I took over 250 pills of medication. And I, before, when I got into the car and left, because remember, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have, you know, a lot of money. I had a few bucks in my pocket and my, that money got spent on a large bottle of water and enough gas to get me to my, my, that off that parking lot. I down the meds, I'm staring in the rear view mirror and I'm like talking to somebody up there and I'm just telling them, like, I'm just, I'm cussing them out. I'm just like, fuck you for giving me this life fuck this place. I don't want to be here anymore. Why is it that I deserve this? I have gone through X, Y, and Z, and I have just been this nice, caring, genuine person. Why do I deserve all of this pain from day one? And I couldn't live with it anymore. There was this moment where I just saw my kids. And I think for a lot of people or women who, or men, Where in that moment, those flashes, those sort of flashes of light happen and you see that image and you're like, okay, I'm not going to get help, but I'm going to give you an option just like the universe gives me options. And I'm going to get in this car and I'm going to start driving to the hospital because I've got 10 minutes and I'm already feeling the meds. So if I get in a car wreck and I die, it was meant to be. But if I get to this hospital as fucked up as I am. And they, they help me and I come out of it. Cause I got to pump my stomach. You know, I'm not a stranger to what the process is. And I walk into that hospital and I asked for help once again. And I said, I took my medication and the receptionist said how much? And I said, all of it. And she said, okay, suicide attempt. Got it. Go to that room. And it was immediately, the monitors went on and the room started to fill and they made me drink this charcoal to mm-hmm. pump my stomach. And they said, if you don't do it, I'm sticking something down your throat and doing it myself. Mm-hmm. And I was crying and, and, and then the lights went out. And as I was falling asleep, I could feel this like sense of exhale, this release. And for a split second, I was so happy and relieved
1: mm-hmm.
0: that I was ready. And then I started choking on a chicken nugget. <laughs> <laughs> A fucking chicken nugget, man.
1: You're eating trying, food there?
0: The nurse mm-hmm. is trying to feed me. You know, they're trying to rouse me and get me awake. And it's been 18 hours. And my partner at the time is, uh, you know, still my partner today. He is driving up and down Main Street and the highways and was about to start calling the police departments and hospitals and, mm. you know, had no idea. So when somebody picks up the phone from the hospital to call him, he asked me by the time he got there, he's like, what did you tell them to put you in the critical care unit? Like, no what'd you say to them to get no, in there? No idea. No, clue. no you clue.
1: You told him. He obviously learned.
0: I did. I did tell him the truth. He did become aware of, of the details more. So now that I'm, I'm going through the process of healing and fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you see it in a more public light, because I feel like, I have such a testament and a story to share that, you know, I want to share it with other people and I want people to gain something out of all of those details to be like, all right, maybe I can do this. Maybe I am capable of as much shit that I have gone through to be able to stand up and hold my head up and, and live in a little bit more light.
1: That was your first attempt.
0: My first attempt.
1: When I asked you that question, you didn't say my only attempt. So 2018 your stomach pumped.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, I cut you off a little bit right at the chicken nugget. And that was an important moment. What's going on? <laughs> Sorry. And then we'll, we'll hop to post suicide attempt number one.
0: Yes. Um, the chicken nugget, um, they, they had to to fill my stomach up. I had, you know, all this junk that was in there and I needed to eat. I hadn't eaten in over 24 hours So I was somewhat conscious. And so they were trying to force feed me. And so they were like, you know, Hey, you need to chew a, you need to, I need you to eat this and just really trying to rouse me. And so when I finally kind of came to and woke up, the nurse just sort of looked at me and was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? Like you should have had a fucking seizure girl. Like, what are you thinking right now? Are you okay? do you need to talk to somebody? Do you need a hug? Like she was just very blunt and real and was like, you got this fucking security guard out here for three days staring at you now. You can't go pee with now anymore. She was like, talk to somebody. And she sent a social worker in to talk to me. And that was another moment. It was like the the burn girl who waited for it with me for 45 minutes. She, I could see that she could see the pain and I didn't need to explain anything other than what was coming out of my mouth. And she got it. And she was mm-hmm. like, we're sending you back to that hospital. They sent me back for another two weeks. And once again, I get picked up. I drive back through that drive through driveway and my problems are still there waiting for me. And the the sort of ultimatum was you go back to treatment, um, whether you think you are, you know, clean or not, um, because emotionally you were right back where you were and Mm -hmm. you need to be an inpatient again. And I went for another 30 days at a Christian facility um, where I did Bible studies and chores and, you know, really had to earn my recovery. Um, I got released, and in 2019, July of 2019, we moved to Oklahoma, and we uprooted our life from Texas, and we came to you know my my partner's hometown. Here we are with you know uh, Nana and Papa here, and some semblance of a feeling rooted. And then uh, we upgrade, we move a little bit, and we get a little bit of better jobs, and we're feeling more confident, and we have a routine, and we're loving each other. And my son is still not here. He's still not here.
1: Where is he, by the way? He's in Utah. Is he staying with?
0: He's with family? my sister. Yes. He's with my eldest sister, um, who I just, you know, can't think enough. I, I Although we have had our... You know, ups and downs of our relationship. It has been um, something that That's she has just sort of unconditionally showed up for for him. That's a
1: solid. That is a oh my god, a solid move. Yeah. my kid would be in the
0: system right now, and God knows what that would look like. She earns more brown points, brownie points too. So for sure, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a safe. I don't have research. If your kid goes into the system. More likely at some point, if this podcast continues, he's talking to me, maybe. Right.
0: The cycle probably continues.
1: Probably. Maybe. The system, we, we know what happens. Not always, of course, but right. a lot of times so. it's not really designed to help people thrive and flourish. It's just like bare bones. Who knows? Right. I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know. I know there's a lot of good, great human beings trying and they're doing wonderful work. So I never want to bash it, but- we're losing yeah. people and i just don't think we have to be so yeah so your son's not there it's 2019 some stuff has been going well
0: mhm um things have been going well i i started a new job uh, you know really kind of getting back on track we had moments where you know i think for a lot of um adults um you know finances can can be a real big motivator when it comes to those negative thinking thoughts and and ideations, in my opinion. Um, I think when you start to compare yourself to individuals who are more prosperous than you are at that time and see that there are things that you have and want and can't get, the walls start to close in on you a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And you know, just to to just honor, you know, other people in my life, I have had a series Um, You know, my, my best friend in this world who really understood my mental illness the most took his own life. I've had, you know, classmates from high school take their own lives. And, you know, even my, my partner is somebody who deals with their own level of mental health issues and has, you know, made a point to be like, Hey, Hey, you're, you know, you're not the only one who experiences these things. And so it's so real how many of us actually have these thoughts. That's why it's so important for me to have this conversation with you or for anybody to feel heard when, when talking about suicide because there are so many times where you're like, who the fuck else is going through this? Right. Is, yeah. Am I the only one that just can't catch a fucking break? We
1: know worldwide that millions of people try to take their own lives, right? Yeah. We know that. And I wonder about how many people are on that path. If a couple million people try, and I don't know the numbers, how many more, multiply that by what? People that are suffering, are in pain, are thinking about it. It's There are just so many people. And interestingly, weirdly, despite, among other things, social media, another conversation for another day, we feel maybe more alone, certainly not less alone. Now, the cool thing about things like a podcast, someone will hear this, probably several people, maybe more than that, and be like, oh, that A- Yeah, I I connect with that. Some of the stuff she said, and there will be people that feel less shitty and less alone. So thank you. Thank you. And there is no question about that. So. um,
0: So from between 2019 and this year, it has uh, been you know just a weeble wobble, a balance of things. I feel like this past year, in in and of itself, has been the greatest portion of my healing. So what you were able to get communicated from me now was not as easy to do so a year ago um, or really to even identify my thoughts with my feelings. Um, about a month or two ago, you know, some uh, conversations of, uh, you know, things you know changing and financial things getting hard again and having to be considerate of other people other than myself and and realize that the choices that i make in my day to day although i'm supposed to be here for me and take care of me right my choices impact everybody and anything that are, that comes into contact with me so when i don't have a balance of that in my life and i'm only focused on me or only focused on the other people something starts to fall short emotionally for me. And I am just this, you know, tried and true nurturer and, and feel the need to love and protect and be there for everybody else. And, and, and doing that, that out sort of gives me an out into taking care of my own thoughts. And so uh, about a month or two ago, I got into an argument with my partner. I wasn't willing to hear the frustrations on his part As much as I was focused on the negative of how I felt and I wasn't being heard and I and me and whatever, there was a disconnect there in the conversation and rather than me knowing better. Um and to be fair, my partner, you know, has areas of work too, didn't walk away from the situation. And so it built up and the anger and the things that were being said were building up and building up. And I cut my wrist. Um, it was probably one of those moments I just sat there, you know. I, I actually didn't cut it in the kitchen. Um, I walked away and I threw the knife away and I was so pissed off because I was like, you fucking pussy, can't even do that. I was mad at myself because I feel like I have a really hard time with like, not being passive to other people and standing in my truth, letting my voice be heard. And so I was so angry with myself that I was like, well, if I'm gonna, you know, C word, I am going to do it in private. And hopefully I'll do it well enough that something will happen. I bled but didn't cut deep enough, thankfully. The rest of my day went on. I went to a family member's house to do some extra work. And it was like, all right, keep on going. And so I think what I learned from that attempt for me was that just because we get to a point, even after the point when we actually attempt, it's never too late to 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 back out. It's never too late to crawl out of from under the blankets and say, I'm gonna continue on with my day. Or you don't have to continue those ruminating thoughts because you're determined and stubborn to believe that truth when you can say. I'm done with this for right now, you know, and something that I, I had to work on and think, you know, thank God I'm not there anymore, but for a year straight, it was like, I'll kill myself tomorrow. I'll just kill myself tomorrow. I won't do it today. I'll just do it tomorrow. And here we are, you know, however many years later, and, you know, back from that one, from this past attempt or attention seeking, I call it because, you know, there, there's a motive there when you do those things. And you don't have to beat yourself up to understand the motive or those character flaws within yourself, like manipulation tactics, to be able to be okay with wanting to change. You don't have to feel shitty about what person you've become because of the conditioning you've had, just because you have tried to cut yourself or take pills or you know whatever level of numbing that you have. And it, it's important for me to vocalize that more because some days I want to lay under the covers and be like, no, you need to be upset with this. You need to replay this thought over and over and over and over again until you're sick of it. And maybe you'll want to kill yourself enough that you'll succeed. Or I can get out.
1: Did you ever get a diagnosis that you think is accurate?
0: No, mm-hmm. I don't feel That'd like anything that I've gotten was accurate because I don't believe it's a one size fits all. And I think as a society, we like to categorize things. And I think when we look at internal things, we can always put a name on it, but can we address it and fix it?
1: Given what you just shared with me just before what you said there, and if you've heard the podcast, you'll hear, you've, you've heard some of these questions. You're 30. Yes. Are you going to make it to 31?
0: Yes. I say that not egotistically. I say that confidently, and uh, as a testament to the work that I'm continuously doing. Um, I don't know that I won't walk out the door. You know that I'll walk out the door and not make it. Um, I do know that if I continue to do what I'm doing now and putting one foot in front of the other, I will make it to 31.
1: How many people do you have in your life when you're having a shitty day or a shitty moment you can talk to in a way where you where you feel Insert word good, heard, connected. Yeah. The things we presumably all of us want.
0: Yeah, um, I'm a firm believer in quality over quantity. So I would say I have about like four real solid people in my life, um, either mm-hmm. family members or friends that don't need to respond in order to get it. They they don't need to feel the silence when I'm having those days, and that's the biggest thing for me.
1: Mm. How many people know about either attempt?
0: in the beginning when it first happened only my family knew and once I became more comfortable in sharing my story and my journey with uh, my death doula work I felt it was important to share with the world about my suicide attempt so Um, I do, um, I did share that publicly actually on a podcast.
1: (laughs) Oh Oh, my God. It wasn't the first fucking podcast. I
0: actually made it myself. I did one episode of a podcast. Um, and do you mind if I say the name? Um, Of
1: course. Yeah. And and we'll put a link to it. What's the name of your podcast?
0: It's, It's called death is, but a dream. And the first episode I only created one. It was in September, and I'm just in the process of school and, and creating a better plan. Um, but the first episode is called "Till Death Doulas Part," and it's actually talking about your death experiences.
1: Is it on Apple or Spotify?
0: It's on Spotify. Thank
1: I'm gonna you. listen to it. Yeah,
0: thank you.
1: Only a couple more, and then I'll add, you know. Then of course you can add anything else you want. Yeah. I also know that you have a a, a young child who probably wants his mother. <laughs> Are there any myths? And some of them have come up in the course of our conversation, but are there any myths you want to explicitly and clearly say no bullshit?
0: I think we did address it both in some way, but I would like to restate them. I think that a lot of times as a person who suffers from mental illness, we tend to focus on the name of what we have and what is wrong with me. And uh, I think that it is not a one size fits all. I think that when we are able to get really, really real with ourselves and really address internally what we're feeling is the only way that we're going to be able to to find a solution to the specific or unique problem that we're experiencing. Um, Mm. We all experience the same emotions, but I think the pain is always going to be different individually. Um, I think also the other thing I would like to address in that portion is really that it's never too late either. As I said before, you know, you can have already started to, you know, make that incision and decide that you're done and you do want help and you can say those words. Mm -hmm. And just because they say that people, you know, go through those things, it doesn't mean that they are just trash. You know, we all go through shit and I know in no way do I think that I am a lesser level of citizen um, just because of my issues. Mm
1: hmm. I had a friend of mine several years ago, many years ago, who introduced me to cocaine, which I love. To this day, I don't do it. But it was the drug that just made my brain just feel so good. Yeah. He also said, Sean, don't do heroin. And now this is a question I'll have for you, in part because of your use, in part because of things you've shared, in part because of faith and spirituality. And he said, heroin is the closest you will ever come to God. Don't do it. Yeah. And I didn't. And I've thought about that. And in a weird way, it helped me because I know it probably would have killed me. Mm -hmm. So this is a tough question. I know you've done heroin.
0: Yes. A lot of it.
1: Is he right?
0: Yes. Mm. Yes. Unfortunately, I think that there's a little bit of interpretation for that phrasing. And I don't think it's going to be what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say that it's the closest to God you will ever become, that it is the closest to being here as you can be, the least amount of being here as you can be, and uh, feel absolutely euphoric at the same time, and it, it does, it provides a level of euphoria. We wouldn't, uh, we'll enjoy it, and there wouldn't be so many people who are stuck on it if if they weren't weren't feeling that level. Um, I will say just having gone through the process and knowing statistically how few people actually are able to come off of opiates and stay off of opiates, it is a hard process and I am not perfect. And I have had my moments of weakness and my own, uh, you know, other health issues. I, I got clean in a hotel room, eating half of Suboxone strips for four days, shaking my legs off of a mattress just praying that it was going to end. And I am so grateful that I stopped using. I am so grateful that I stopped using because as much pain as I feel like I still have to work through and cope with and process, um, the level of pain that I felt when all of that came to a head is far greater than any death that I will ever experience.
1: No, I know that you are not going to hire me to help name your memoir, but I would consider somewhere in the title or subtitle. And I think there just there will be a sort of positive bend to it. But ugly dark shit, <laughs> ugly dark shit. I, I that might be subtitle. It might be somewhere else. I just don't. Want, I want you to consider using that. Finally, before I uh, we we say goodbye to one another, your work is it death doula?
0: Yes. A death doula.
1: Why did you do that? Mark? Why did you choose to get into that field?
0: For a really long time, I thought it was just because I had this like sick fascination with death. And uh, you asked me a question in the beginning of people being like, wait, you wanted healthy tools, but you looked up suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, I work, have worked in healthcare for the better part of my adult life. So for the past decade, I have had different levels of hands-on experience on caring for patients and watching them pass in front of me and uh, seeing them just not come back one day. And it has really, really allowed me to, to focus on the fact that I feel like we struggle from what's called these nine contemplations of death. And it is so non-discriminatory. And the nine contemplations were death. They were written by a philosopher years and years ago, centuries ago. When you look up the nine contemplations, you will realize that any and everything and any decision that we make, it all kind of surrounds on this fear that we have that we won't be able to attain or accomplish something before we die. And when I started to realize that, And was able to get really real with that for myself and with my patients, it just sort of opened up this window of being able to comfort people in a way that does not involve medical care, but just being able to be a level of emotional support and hold a safe and sacred space
1: for Mm. people
0: needing to have these questions answered or needing somebody to ask them those questions because they need to have that testimony spoken or vocalized for their loved ones, for themselves, to really have this sort of ultimate trans transition into something else,
1: yeah. I mean, obviously, the nature of death is different than the nature of birth, but there is a when you said some of that, it's like it's kind of like a midwife, yes. I'm not yes. sure if that's the best if that's an outdated term, but no, it's midwife the- for death. We it's just interesting how, as a culture, it's not just our culture, we've gotten so far away from some of the things that worked for centuries, and when we got away from them, it seems like we just totally got away from them and we try to like replace them with these other things. It's like, wait, but those worked, but we've done that with almost everything like medicine, for example. And we're slowly just now starting to connect back to natural medicines that have been around for centuries.
0: And I think it plays such a huge part into mental wellness. I think that um, these levels of of spiritual ritual and ceremony and connection that we have with with other humans and and people um, sort of get pushed under the rug now because with advanced technology and AI, we don't have to do anything for ourselves. We push a button and it's done for us and including human contact, right? We can get our needs met in completely Mm -hmm. different ways without actually having to have a connection or contact with a person. And I think that that's why we are all there's so many of us now. I think it's the biggest and greatest pandemic of our Earth or globe because so much has changed over the last century that um, we no longer know how to emotionally take care of ourselves because the society doesn't allow us to do it. And as a doula, I'm able to create that time and, and space for those people who did not, it were not able to make amends with their family members because years had gone by and they had a career to, to look out for. Or the person who has been bitter and angry, like my father, who feels like there are no options or that they can do anything at this age and be able to honor them and say, what would you like to have at the end of your life? and Yeah, just just real conversations. Why the fuck do we wait until a doctor's like, hey, you're going to die in like six months. Make sure you handle all your shit. When we can be preparing for this at any age or at any time in our life, if we get real about it and are like, okay, if I gear this to have a sacred space when I die, rather than a million dollars when I die, um, I think our life and our society would be way different.
1: 100%. You're doing the work. You're doing the work. I'm doing it in my own different kind of way. I'm trying. We're trying. We're trying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think think it's not for nothing. I think that, you know, some of us not unique, I think I just have a different calling and have a way of connecting to other people. And I'm tired of my you know superpower sort of following, falling by the wayside because I can't get out of my own fucking head. Um, I want to share it with people. Um, And just to touch back on, you know, some, some really great people that I have utilized um, uh, as far as public figures, um, Andrew Solomon um, is a really amazing person who has a great Ted talk and some amazing books um, Mm -hmm. and documentaries out um, to help with emotional therapy. And uh, there is uh, a, they call him a death walker. And he is from a different um, place and I'm not sure what country he is from, but his name is Steven Jenkinson. And he also has a couple of documentaries and videos out that you can watch to just kind of gain a little bit more value within life. And I think his documentary is actually called Death Walker.
1: People like, they don't like to talk about death.
0: No, we don't.
1: Suicide. Certainly not.
0: Mm -mm. Yeah. Can't have that with your morning coffee.
1: (laughs) Well, let's not talk about, let's not talk about that. Let's not do that. (laughs) But apparently some people want to, because you're here. Other people are here. People hear it.
0: I don't Uh, like uh, the other shit. Like, tell me your secret life secret.
1: (laughs) Tell me about it, man.
0: I also think that when you allow to, to just sort of navigate through life in this open way, people sort of gravitate towards you and you start to just, just bring people into your life that just sort of already understand that. And at least Mm -hmm. I think for me, Um, That is what has happened over the last, you know, year or two of just creating a completely different um, environment and energy for myself um, that when those shitty moments do come up, it's a little bit easier and and not so long lived that I'm having to try and pull myself out of it. You know, rather than it being two or three weeks, it's like a day or two, you know, that I'm just kind of not on my shit. And then, you know, Monday comes and it's like exhale and get back to it.
1: Hey, in Oklahoma, mother yes uh doula
0: doula wife
1: uh, wife
0: phlebotomist
1: <laughs> that too and among other things no doubt yes. uh suicide attempt survivor
0: suicide survivor for sure that definitely gets a gold star um, on my on my jacket so. thank you thank you sean it's um, been a pleasure
1: no thank you it's a pleasure for me After A and I finished our conversation, she actually had a little more to say. She sent an audio recording. It's an important part of the larger story, so I am including that here before we formally say goodbye.
0: There was a specific detail that I felt like it was important to let you know um, within the process of... uh, you know getting on the bus and divine timing and, and all of that and I, I did mention a little bit about an individual a male individual that was um uh, you know sort of in the mix of all of that you know really grooming me and um just uh, uh, keeping me sort of in in that sixth state and part of what was really coming up for me was that I was getting these sort of you know, signs, um, uh, whether you wanna call it intuition or this gut feeling that I got, um, that this person was not safe and the people that we were around were not safe. And so when I was kicked out of my home, it was sort of this catalyst of everything because right before that, you know, I had really, really made the decision within myself that I couldn't be around this person anymore and I needed to cut off all communication and ties. And so I had gotten out of the car, you know, asking that per- person to promise to never see me again and thinking that I was going to be okay. I walked into the house with my dad and he was like, you can walk right the fuck back out. And um, again, talking about divine timing, knowing that this individual wasn't safe by the time that I had gotten to Texas, you know, two weeks from that point, And then a-, a month later of recovery in treatment. Uh, in an inpatient facility. When I uh, discharged from the facility, I got a job very quickly after and uh, decided to look up something that I knew just wasn't sitting right with me. And I came across a news article, um, you know, showing that the individual that I was around uh, was arrested for um, first-degree home invasion. And um, another of the individual that I was really close with um, that was uh, more intimate with me in that time was um, not the person that uh, I realized and found a lot of information out, um, really reinforcing the fact that, you know, I'm lucky that I did make it out alive. So I felt it was important to share that with you just to kind of give you a little bit more context and picture of what really happened in the process of all of that. And uh, to this day, I still have this individual, you know, periodically attempt to make contact or reach out. And it can re-trigger things for me and, uh, you know, attempt to put me in this downward spiral spiral of negative uh, thinking or um, negative thoughts and ideations. And, um, you know, thankfully, because of my support system of those four individuals, I am able to you know, really, really pull myself out of that and remind myself that, you know, I'm not that person. Um, and, I, and I didn't deserve a lot of those things, even though I was sick at the time.
1: You know, if you heard the podcast, you know, Sean's the worst at ending these calls. I never know how to do it. I'm like, all right, have a good day. And I'm like, that doesn't feel right. So I will say, um, I'm glad you're still here. And uh, and thank you for joining me. And I really do hope that you continue Talking about this stuff. I think you're going to help a lot of people.
0: Thank you. Likewise, Sean. Appreciate right.
1: you. I'll talk soon, A and, and be well.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to A out in Oklahoma. Thanks so much, A. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com. On Facebook or Twitter, at Suicide Noted. And we also have a website. We're working on it. It's not done, but it's up. SuicideNoted.com. There's a contact form on there as well. Help us out if you would. Let folks know about the podcast, especially folks who may need to hear it. Share it on social media. If you listen on Apple, I know I say this a lot, rating and reviewing helps people find it. It really does. However you support the podcast and those who are a part of it, thank you. And that is all for episode number 105 stay strong, do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.